0: Uh, Turn to Mark chapter 11. We're going to take a break from the book of Hebrews this morning because we are starting um, what's known as Holy Week, a march up to Easter. And the week leading up to Easter, Christians for thousands of years have gone on a a spiritual pilgrimage of the heart, of the mind, to kind of reimagine and reenact the gospel, Jesus' journey, um, to the sorrow of the cross, and then beyond that to the exuberant joy of Easter Sunday. And that's where we're going to be at a week from now. We, it's a celebration, and that's why we, we want to we celebrate together, to come together in fellowship and celebrate the, our risen Savior and our risen Lord. That's the point. So like what Dave said, if, you, if you've got other meal plans, we won't spoil your, your dinner. We won't. We're going to have just light kind of snacky type things. Um, but come stay for a while. Uh, uh, the service gets over at noon, um, and stay for a half hour or so, and and celebrate with us. Okay, let's read uh, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll pray, and we'll we'll jump in. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at, the Mount, at the, uh, the Mount Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send, back, send it back here shortly. This is verse 4. They went and found a colt outside on the street, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts, He looked looked around at everything, but since it, it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Jesus, would you please lead us through this? Show us what this means. Thank you that you're here in this room, that the King of Kings is here. And I pray that the gravity of that would impact us all, that we would sense the presence of royalty, of the divine. God, speak We're here to listen. Thank you for covering us with your blood that we can come before you clean and partake of what you've got for us today. Lead us today, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Um, One of the extremely meaningful and I think absolutely essential stops, you could say, in our journey to truly understanding Easter that's what our goal is by Easter to understand it. And if we're going to understand it, we need to understand it the way the Bible wants us to understand it. Isn't that right? Rather than what our culture might want to say or rather than what we might be thinking or, or how we were raised and all the other things that naturally come with when we hear the word Easter, a bunch of stuff pops up in your all your minds about Easter. Easter's this, Easter's that. You have memories, you have childhood things, you've got all this stuff going on. We're trying to understand it the way the gospel writers would have wanted us to understand it. And the gospel writers lead us on a journey up to it, and, and the first stop on this journey, so to speak, is an extremely essential and crucial event um, known as the Triumphal Entry or Palm Sunday, even though uh, John's John's gospel is the only one that tells us that they were actually palm, palm trees, but still we've dubbed it um, Palm Sunday. And... The, to be quite frank with you, the meaning of this event is really significant. This is Jesus' descent on Jerusalem to confront it. I, I've titled this message, uh, The Triumphal Assault, because <laughs> that's what it is. It's a confrontation. It's an assault on a city. It is a, um, a very intentional, methodical attack of sorts. And I'll show you what that means. And that's definitely what the gospel writers are trying to get across. The entire gospel of Mark has been building up to this visit. It's like tensions have been slowly rising. It's to a boiling point. And in this particular visit, Jesus comes to the city of Jerusalem, not as a visitor. You can tell it's very particular. He's very specific in how he wants to go in there because it's deeply symbolic. He's not coming as a visitor, nor is he coming as uh, just one of many devout Jewish men attending one, you know, uh, in, uh, one of many fe- Jewish Jewish feasts. No, we're going to see this visit in particular means something significant and means something much, much more. And there are a number of different clues in the text that that indicate this. For one thing, when you read the Gospels all the way through, especially if you do it in one sitting, if you can read all the Gospels in one shot, if you've got the time to do that, you can't help, one of the things that you're going to feel in your gut as you're reading it is you can't help but feel puzzled by Jesus always trying to conceal his identity. Have you noticed that? You know, he would do a miracle or he would heal the sick or he would drive out demons and he was constantly telling people, hey, keep this down. Don't tell anybody about this. Keep this low. Don't say anything. And the reason was, as the apostle John put on the lips of Jesus over and over again, Jesus keeps saying, my time has not yet come. It's not my time yet. My time has not yet come. In other words, Jesus is saying, if word gets out that he's the Jewish Messiah, this long prophesied, long awaited king from the family of David, that's going to make the power brokers in both church and state there in Israel, extremely threatened, and they're going to kill him before he's ready to be killed. He He still has things to do. He's not ready to die yet. So leading up to this point, Jesus has been exerting an enormous amount of energy trying to control the information trying to keep back exactly how fast it all, it all gets out. But now in this, in this story where we come to today, you'll notice it's full throttle. He's full tilt. He's, he's not caring anymore. In fact, leading up to this moment, if you were to read before uh, this event, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus is met by a blind beggar named Bartimaeus who cries out, quote, son of David, have mercy on me. And the disciples try to quiet the guy down. But Jesus calls him forward. He, keeps, he just keeps crying all the louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. In other words, Bartimaeus is proclaiming that Jesus is the Jewish king, the Messiah. And Jesus heals him and surprisingly, doesn't give him any prohibitions about speaking out. In fact, this miracle just adds momentum to the crowd as Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem. And John tells us that a crowd from Jerusalem comes out and meets the crowd coming into Jerusalem around Jesus and it becomes an even bigger crowd to escort him in. And then Mark tells us how specific Jesus is on the way he wants to enter in. In other words, he doesn't want to just walk in like he has before. This time he's insistent that he rides in. He's very particular about this. He must come riding into Jerusalem on a colt, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But not just any colt. Verse 2 tells us that this colt needs to be one in which no one has ridden. It's very specific instructions. It's clear from these indicators in the text that this particular visit into Jerusalem is very different than any other visit. Jesus is not coming into Jerusalem as a tourist or even as a pilgrim. Listen, you guys, this is the story of Jesus entering into the city of the king as the king of that city. This is the return of the king. This is Jesus going public with his identity. He's coming out and saying who he really is. He's sending a loud signal. So today, we're going to explore the significance of what Jesus is saying here. And we're going to learn at least at least three things. I'm sure there's probably more, but at least some main three things here is, Jesus. number one, Jesus is the long-awaited Davidic king. We need to understand that. Again, we don't want to understand Easter the way we are used to understanding Easter. What do the gospel writers, what picture are they painting here? So firstly, he's the long-awaited Davidic king. Secondly, his coming is an intentional, purposeful, all-out assault on the leadership of that city. He's confronting the city of his forefathers. That's what he's doing. It's an intentional, purposeful, all-out assault on this city. But number three, it's an assault in a way that no one expects. No one would ever expect, okay? So first, he's the Davidic king. Secondly, he's bringing an assault on the city. Thirdly, in a way that no one's expecting. First, this passage... And the one leading up to it, like we already explained, tells us loudly that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to, gave to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that a king would come from David's family that would rule the earth forever. Forever. All the gospel writers are singing in unison here. If, if you think of the gospels as a, as a you know, four singers singing all different harmonies. They stop those harmonies and now they sync up and they sing in unison the same, the same exact melody. They're saying the same thing. Let me, read, let me read all of them to you. This is our text today. Our text in Mark, it says, those who went ahead of him, those who shouted, listen to the royal tones here. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. That's what you need to hone into here. Hosanna in the highest. Let's go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 21, same story. It says, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Let's go to Luke. As he was drawing near... Already on the way of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then finally, John says, so they took branches of palm trees That's why we call it Palm Sunday and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. Sitting on the donkey on a donkey's colt. When it comes to the message of the gospels, please tune in with me here, dear people, When it comes to the message of the Gospels and the entire Bible for that matter, it is absolutely crucial to understand that the Jewish people were anxiously awaiting the long prophesied, long awaited Jewish king from the family of David who would come to the world and set all wrongs right. That's what was going on. This king would finally bring perfect justice and righteousness to the world and end all tyranny and evil forever for all time. And that's that's what the Jewish people are anxiously waiting for at this point and in this setting. You can you and you I'll just be straight up: you really are gonna misunderstand the gospels if you forget this point, if you don't see it through this, through the gospel's lens. In the larger context, about 600 years prior to this event, Israel was invaded and enslaved to the nation of Babylon. Many of you know this and understand the story. The Babylonians completely descended upon Jerusalem. They completely leveled Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple of the Lord that Solomon had built, Solomon, the son of David, by the way, had built, and took all the people of the land back to Babylon. To be in exile there. And now, although since that time, um, they've returned from Babylon and inhabited their homeland again, but still politically, they're still in exile domestically. They're still in exile in their own land. Um, and they knew this, they were very aware of this. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 36 Nehemiah laments. He says, Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers. So they were very aware that though they were in the land that God gave them, they were not living the way God intended. And that is free, free and as a light to the nations. They were still enslaved and oppressed. They were exiles at home. You could put it that way. They were exiles at home. Now, all of this was prophesied. All of this was prophesied, but those same prophets also prophesied that a king from the line of David would come, and he would come and lead them on what they described as a and hear this phrase, a new kind of exodus, a better exodus than the one out of Egypt before. Not so much out of a foreign land necessarily, but this time out of an exodus out of tyranny, out of oppression a spiritual kind of an exodus that included political freedom as well. Let me read to you a few of the heavy hitters so you can understand what has been soaking the Jewish culture up into this moment where Jesus came. This is from Isaiah chapter 11. Let me read this to you. It says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's David's father, David's dad, and a branch. Okay, um, fun fact, you know, in Matthew It's either chapter one or chapter two. Matthew says, um, when he's describing Jesus coming out of Egypt and going into Nazareth, settling in Nazareth, you remember that part? Matthew says something really curious. He says, this is to fulfill what the prophets have said, quote, he shall be called a Nazarene. Do you guys remember that? That's Matthew chapter one or two, somewhere in there. Interesting about that is there is no direct quote in any of the prophets that says that. The clue that Matthew gives is usually when he does a quotation from the Old Testament, he says, this is to fulfill what the prophet has said. This time he says, what the prophets have said. And interesting about Nazareth, in the Hebrew language, the word branch has the exact same consonants as the city Nazareth, Nazareth does. So this is a creative way of Matthew being a creative way of playing with scripture saying this is to fulfill this. In other words, Jesus is the branch man. Jesus is the branch living in the branch city, the branch man coming from the the, the, the stump of Jesse. This is a direct uh, link to a prophecy. Basically from the very beginning, Matthew is saying Jesus is the son of David that you've been waiting for. Um, And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. And now listen, it's gonna keep going. And now he's gonna describe what kind of kingdom or how far reaching this Davidic kingdom will be. It'll usher in perfect world peace, Justice and righteousness. Look, this is verse six of Isaiah eleven. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf will be together, and a little child shall shall, lean, shall be able to lean on them. So the little kids will be able to cuddle with these uh, predators. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on, the, on an adder's den, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the, for the earth shall belong, shall be full of the, of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. And now, if, you're, if your ears are tuned right, you'll be able to hear Exodus language. Let me see if you can hear it. In that day, the root of Jesse, we're still talking about the same guy, the king of of. of of David, or from the line of David, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples? Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Here we go. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. Um, one of the things that you'll notice through, um, if you read Exodus chapter 15, which is the Song of the Sea, you'll see this constant phrase: "The arm of the Lord, the hand of the Lord." We were saved by the right arm of the Lord, the hand of the Lord. He's employing that language to hyperlink us back to that event. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from uh, Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, uh, from Shinar, from Hamath, from the coasts of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations. That's more Exodus language. Uh, The book of Exodus tells us that one of the reasons that God was saving Israel through Egypt was to show all the other nations how God chooses to save. It was always a signal to the rest of the world. And he will assemble banished Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall, shall, uh, shall depart. And those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall shall not be jealous of Judah. Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. And he will wave his hand over the river with with. With his scorching breath, that's Exodus 15 again. The breath of his nostrils, the song of the sea says, split the sea and strike it into seven channels. And here we go. And the people will cross over it in sandals. And there will be a highway from Syria and from the remnant. Another one is Jeremiah echoes Isaiah. Jeremiah also says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. From David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved. Israel will, be secu- will uh, dwell securely And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the, here's our Exodus language again, as the Lord brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, not anymore, but as the Lord lives, who brought up the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he he has driven them, then shall they dwell in their own land. These and others are the scriptures that are fanning the flames of the hopes of the people and the crowd that are around Jesus at this point. These are the things that they've been learning since they were, uh, you know, toddling around in their homes, since they were old enough to think. Their parents and their community leaders, their synagogues were telling them a king is coming and he'll make it all right. A king is coming. He's going to make it all right. It'll set up the, the, the worldwide. Uh, dominion of the kingdom of David again they're anxiously looking for a ruler from the line of David who will do something similar but much much greater than what was done in Egypt through Moses they're looking for a Davidic king who will conquer all their foes and lead them on this second greater exodus out of tyranny and oppression and usher in a worldwide Davidic kingdom That's what they're looking for when they... So all of that, all of that theology, all of that background is packed into the phrase, Hosanna, blessed is is the one from from the line of David. All of that is right there in there. All of that, by the way, is also packed into the word Messiah. When they say you are the Messiah, all of that is crammed into that word. That's what that means for them. And... I want to point something out to you. Jesus is agreeing with them. That's what Jesus is saying too. This is Jesus going public with his messianic identity. And this is why the disciples start to rejoice. They start to party it up. They're thinking, they're seeing that this visit is different. And they're picking up on all these signals and cues, these intentional cues of Jesus. And they're saying, this is it. This is the moment that we've been waiting for. All that work, all that time spent campaigning in the north and Galilee, all of that is finally gonna pay off. And this is the moment where the king, our new king is gonna enter into the city and reclaim and sit on the throne of David again. This is it. That's where the rejoicing. So now can you feel that kind of energy in the crowd as you read the text, as you imagine this? That's, that's the kind of energy that's there. This pent up grief of oppression is, in their mind is finally going to be broken. Oh yes, it's time. Freedom again. And please understand, they are reading this correctly. They're not misunderstanding up to this point. That's, this is exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, my kingdom is coming to bear right now. And he's been saying this the whole time. Remember what he's been saying? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? That's been his entire message. He really has come to bring the kingdom of God. In fact, Luke's gospel, some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they know very well what Jesus is saying or what they think his disciples think he means. And they tell Jesus, you should correct them. You remember that? They're like, Jesus, you should stop this. The implications of this are too great, and Jesus won't do it, right? He said, remember the famous line, if if they don't praise me, even the rocks will cry out, right? He's saying, no, I don't need to correct them at this point because this is true. This is true. He's saying it's actually true. Okay, so that's the first point. Jesus is saying that he is the long-awaited Davidic Messiah king come to usher in the kingdom of God and there pumped They're pumped, they're ready to go. Secondly, His kingdom brings an all-out full tilt assault on the city of his forefathers. I didn't include this in the uh, reading passage, but if you were to keep reading in this story or any other of the gospel's recollection of this event, you will find that Jesus marches into the city and begins to begins a series of conflicts beginning with the cleansing of the temple, right? After this event, and really this event is attached to what follows. After this, he marches in and he goes to the temple and he clears out the money changers that are there. And remember his famous line, he says, what have you done? This, my house is to be a house of prayer. You've made it into a den of thieves. And he, you know, he, may, he constructs a whip and he whips people out of there and he confronts, he confronts what's going on in the temple, symbolically as he's leaving the city he uh, curses a fig tree being a, rep, a fig tree being a symbol of the nation of Israel and he basically is he's bringing judgment on his nation please don't get the impression in your mind that Jesus is just trying to save the world in a real peaceful loving way and things just kind of went bad on him and and he ended up being no 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 Jesus is being extremely aggressive you cannot read it in any other way. And all the gospels are in, are in unison to this. He is confronting. In fact, man, one, of the, one of the most famous confrontations is Matthew 23. Do you remember when he talks to the religious leaders and he says, woe to you? This is not, this is public. You den of vipers, you brood of thieves right? Woe to the, he names them, the scribes and the Pharisees. They love the top, the, the top seats in the synagogue. He just goes on about this, about the lead, their leaders. I think at one point, if I remember right, I didn't write it down, he, he, he calls them sons of hell. This strong, aggressive language. And they're starting to squirm. They start to fight back, Right? And they start to challenge him, try to get him into questions that'll get him in trouble. They plot his death. I don't know about you, I was raised, you know, thinking that Jesus is just this, you know, innocent, really loving guy and there's these really shady characters, uh, bad guys plotting his death. There's more to it. He's bringing it. He's a threat. And this is congruent of what's happened since his birth. You know, Matthew records that as soon as Jesus was born, he was thrust immediately into conflict with the kingdoms of this world. You remember, uh, magi or kings from the east came asking, do you remember what they asked? Where is he that is to be born king of the Jews? The problem is, there was already a king at the time, King Herod. So Jesus was born a second king, and second kings are never welcome. Two kingdoms cannot coexist, and so Herod was trying to extinguish this threat. Just right when Jesus was born, he has to flee. He has to flee to Egypt. Herod kills all the the uh, kids. The kids around. He's got to flee to Egypt and come back. This is from the very beginning. This. One of the main things of the gospel is this tension between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this earth. There's this war going on. And of course, there's all the conflict that he gets into through, through the religious leaders of his day as well. So throughout the gospels, there's this tension that's been slowly building and it's culminating and converging on this moment right now. It's showdown time. That's what this is. It's a showdown. But when we consider the even broader biblical story of Yahweh, this is exactly what you'd expect, you guys. When when you consider the whole story of the Bible, you're going to go, oh, well, well, of course. Think of it this way. If Jesus really is the foretold Davidic king come to lead his people on a new exodus or Well, let me, here's a better way. If the story of Jesus, according to the Gospels, really is the story of Yahweh's, of Israel's God, Yahweh, come in human form to rescue his people, right? Then like Yahweh, who came into conflict with Pharaoh, remember? Right away, Moses says, Yahweh says, let my people go. And he goes, Yahweh, who's that? I don't answer to him. And there's immediately conflict in the Exodus story, which is the template of God's salvation. Jesus is the anti-type of that whole thing. So that would make complete sense. And remember there was a series of confrontations, like uh, there was 10 plagues leading up to the Passover lamb being killed, a confrontation between Pharaoh. And it wasn't just political powers, but it makes it very clear in Exodus that there was a confrontation between Yahweh and the spiritual dark gods of Egypt. That Pharaoh was just a puppet and a pawn for. So therefore, it would make sense that we see, when we see the embodiment of Yahweh, Jesus, that he would confront the powers of Jerusalem and the spiritual dark authorities keeping mankind in bondage to sin. There's this war going on. And that's exactly what we see. Jesus is bringing an assault on the city and he shook it up. He shook it up. He goes to the temple, throws out the money changers. Leaders are trying to trip him up. He's calling them names. They're scheming and plotting his death. Make no mistake about it, he's bringing an assault that they feel they have to respond to. They're feeling threatened. Jesus is basically entering the city saying, crown me or kill me. Those are your two options. But the kingdom is established in a way that nobody expects. That's our third point. Why is Jesus so specific about what he's going to ride into Jerusalem? Well, as Matthew tells us, it fulfills scripture for one thing. The scripture is from Zechariah chapter 9, which is a messianic oracle that says, Behold, your king is coming to you. And here it uses the word humble. Mounted on a donkey. The word humble and donkey are connected there. That's the idea and that's the point. In David's day and in Solomon's day, when they would go out on a military campaign or out on a raid, they would come back into their city on a majestic uh, war horse. That's how David came in. That's how Solomon came in. But not the son of David. (laughs) The son of David, Jesus. He comes in conquering through humility, through service. Here's the son of David bringing this assault on the city. It's not either or. It's, you never see these two things put together, do we? Strength and weakness, power and humility. And yet that's what we see here. The son of David brings this assault on the city of Jerusalem um, to take it back for the kingdom of David, but he brings, he brings the most history-altering event of all time through service and humility. Right before this, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus tells the disciples how his kingdom is juxtaposed to any other kingdom that this world has has ever seen. Do you remember that? His kingdom would consolidate power in a way unlike anything they'd ever heard of. Here's what he says. He says, you know those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles. In other words, the way Rome is set up. The way Caesar is set up. They lord it over them, and their great ones exercise power over them. But it shall not be so among you. He's describing his kingdom now. But whoever would be great, he's not saying it won't be great. He's not saying it won't be powerful. He's saying, if you want power in my kingdom, you access it by being the servant of all. And whoever would be first, be important, would be valuable must be the slave of all for even the son of man the most powerful being in the universe came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many that's John chapter or Mark chapter 10 verse 42 through 45 do you see what's happening here in the triumphal entry jesus is embodying the true power of his kingdom He's embodying what he just told them about, and it's a power that is so powerful that it shakes up the city, and I will say, it shakes up all of human history. It shakes up the entire world, and it's through humility, and ultimately, through the death on the cross, the ultimate show of weakness. And now, if you understand that, you guys, the ironies just start pouring in. You see the ironies everywhere. The righteous judge of the universe allows himself to be judged by corrupt, by corrupt people. At the end of the week, Jesus will be crowned with a crown of thorns rammed onto his head. He will be enthroned, but not on a throne, on a cross See, the gospel writers make it clear that the power systems of Jerusalem thought they were killing him, but unbeknownst to them, paradoxically, they were actually crowning him king in that moment. That's heaven's view. Earth's view was we're putting this threat down under our power. Heaven's view was the kingdom of God just came, it just took over. It's a parody. And all the, gospel, all the gospel writers make it clear. All the, look at the crucifixions. Here's homework for you guys since we're, we're marching up to Good Friday. Look at all the crucifixion story and notice all the royal language, all of it. They put a purple robe around him. They bow They say, hail, king of the Jews. They ram the crown of thorns. Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my servants would act. We're talking about all the kingdom language. It's rife throughout all the the stories. And it's super important for us to understand the gospel. By winning, by winning Caesar and his cronies and the religious leaders, by winning, they were really losing. And by losing, Jesus was winning. The triumphal king, triumph, phenomenal cosmic power, rides in on a donkey. You see the iron? It's all over it. The perfect judge being judged. The Davidic king being enthroned on a cross. And the world is forever changed. The power of the kingdom is here now in a way no one would expect. Okay, what in the world does this mean for us? It means a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, Quite frankly, not only is this an assault on the Jewish and political leaders of Jesus' day, but it's a direct assault on our societal structure as well. The average Christian in America today thinks of Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry of Jesus as the time to celebrate when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey so he could die on the cross and save us from our sins and take us to heaven after we die. That's what we think. In other words, we overemphasize the cross and completely ignore the idea of the kingdom. Or we overemphasize the idea of the kingdom and don't really know why Jesus had to die. But when you read the Gospels, and indeed the entire Bible, you will find that these two ideas literally make up the atomic structure of the Gospel itself. If atoms are the building blocks of all matter, These would be the particles that make up the gospel. They're the building blocks of the gospel. And like an atom, that can't be split in two without disastrous consequences. So in the nucleus of the gospel, the kingdom and the cross, what hold it together also cannot be split in two without disastrous consequences. And yet that is precisely what we have done in the West since the Enlightenment. Almost so now. To now, almost by osmosis, when we read the Gospels and see there, either only an emphasis on the kingdom, and that's usually to validate some contemporary social agenda, and leave you know that we might have and leave a question mark to why the cross mattered at all. This is more of your liberal theological churches will will emphasize a social gospel, and you really don't know why Jesus had to die at all. Or, as a knee-jerk reaction to that, in more conservative churches, we only see the cross as a way to emphasize the mechanism by which God rescues sinners from this world so that they can go to another place called heaven, which is more of a platonic, it's more Plato than it is the Bible. This group of Christians who only see the cross have no good answers as to why the gospel writers thought it was important to write all the middle stuff. You know, we, we celebrate the, the incarnation, the birth, and we celebrate the death of Jesus. And when you ask us, hey, why is all, what's all the middle stuff about? We kind of, why did they think it was important to write about the healings and the teachings and all of those types of things in the middle? Because it has everything to do with the kingdom. The attempt uh, to reconstruct the gospel message away from an accurate biblical reading, as I told you, goes back to a guy named um, H.S. Ramirez who wrote at the height of the Enlightenment's hatred for Christianity. (laughs) Right around that time, Ramirez was a deist who believed that if there was a God, he was no longer interested in or possibly even aware of the affairs of the world. So therefore, it leaves all the ethics all the governing, all of society building to us humans. You can already hear the hints of humanism coming in here. These were all steps on the journey of accomplishing the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment idea's biggest idea, the idea that Voltaire shouted from the rooftops in France, wipe out the scandal. How do you say that, Vero, in French? Okay. Why about the scandal, is what he said. He was referring to the scandal of Christianity. Western societies are founded on the absolute, in other words, the idea, the absolute separation of church and state, or the ideas of the kingdom and the cross. Now, listen, my point is not to come against America or Western societies. I'm a big America fan. But I'm simply trying to say, living in a culture that's founded on such individualistic individualistic principles has got to affect the way you read the Bible. It does affect the way you read the Bible. You come to the Bible with that kind of a lens and you read it through that grid and you end up missing things that the gospel writers were trying to communicate. It means that it's very easy for us to see Jesus as a savior but not as a king, for example. We can claim Christianity without it having any effect on the rest of our lives. That's the kind of Christianity it produces. Christianity has become a completely private thing in the West, and it's become improper to bring, to bring God's kingdom into any of the public square. You feel we're not supposed to talk about that here. It's fine on Sunday in a room like this, go for it, but don't you bring it out there. Listen, I just got to point this out. This would have been an absolute foreign concept for the gospel writers. They would not have had any idea. You will only be able to find that kind of split reading of the gospels after the enlightenment. But in the gospels themselves, you will not be able to find a text. Prove me wrong. Fact check me. You will not be able to find a text about the cross without the kingdom in it. Or the cross, or or the kingdom without the cross. According to the Bible, you cannot have the kingdom without the cross, and the cross is what inaugurates the kingdom. They go together. And if they're not together, it's no longer the gospel that the gospel writers were trying to communicate. Okay, do you see how political this is? And we Westerners cringe at this point because we like our separate spots, separate spaces. The nature of the kingdom is both now and yet to come. And this is why I think we lose so much power as Christians. John, Listen, another point is that the gospel writers would not agree that we're waiting for God's kingdom to come at his second kingdom. They would say, no, no, no. His kingdom came on the cross. John's account of the story has Jesus saying something extremely interesting. In John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Not at my second coming, not later. Now the ruler of this world is defanged. His power is broken, and when I am lifted up from the earth, he's talking about his crucifixion. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. His crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension is what he's talking about. On the cross, the kingdom of God was inaugurated, and the evil forces of the world were indeed cast out. On the cross, Jesus did not scream out, to be continued! what did he say? It is done. Now, if you read that through a Western lens, that means Jesus finished the work of my salvation so that now I can go to heaven. That's what he meant by that. And that is true, but there's much more. There's much more more that's not all if you but if you read it in light of the davidic kingdom do you see how it changes before your very eyes whole new meaning if you read it in light of the davidic kingdom jesus is saying the kingdom of god is here it is established and it is done now let me just say the question that's on everybody's mind well mike could have fooled me i mean when i look out my window i'm not looking at the kingdom of god And if it is, I'm super disappointed. If this is the kingdom of God, gosh, I don't know if I want to sign up for this. If the kingdom of God is here, then why is there still evil and injustice and pandemics and diseases and abuse and all of those things? It's a great question, absolutely. Because on the cross, the kingdom of God was inaugurated but not fully consummated. The gospels are celebrating something that has already happened, but at the same time that still has, yet, has things yet to happen in the future. In other words, we are living between Jesus's full accomplishment of the reign of God and its full implementation. It still needs to be implemented, implemented. by Who? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, king, the kingdom of God is here, but it still needs to be implemented. It still needs to be spread and uh, consummated by who? hmm hmm yeah, yeah. Yep, you and me, the church. We have what's called, in light of the kingdom, we have what's called a great Commission. Remember in Matthew, Jesus raises from the dead. Remember what he told his disciples? He said, Some authority has been given to me. No, no, he didn't say that, did he? This is the Great Commission passage, Matthew 28. Man, I made a big decisive move against the enemy. It's not quite done yet, but it's almost. No. He said, All authority on heaven and earth have been given to me. In other words, in light of my death and resurrection, All authority I have contended for and I have brought the kingdom of God and I've established it on this planet. All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Now go into all the world and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. No wonder I think the enemy through the enlightenment philosophy says, just keep that to yourself. It cuts the power right out of the church. Because to the gospel writers, listen, to the gospel writers, see for us, when we hear about the great commission and God's future accomplishment, we think, oh, that's when Jesus comes back and we're just gonna wait until then and hold on. We're just going to try to survive until Jesus comes back. And that's partially true, but there's so much more. That's not all. The gospel writers meant so much more. To them, the kingdom of the kingdom of God meant yes, a future heaven, but it also meant this great commission where the kingdom of God was brought into the social, cultural, political, and even the cosmic heavenly world. By us, my point is, you guys as a church, we have our hand on the throttle of the kingdom of God in Seattle. We can either full tilt, go for it, or we can hold back. That's what the triumphal entry is all about. Jesus is bringing a new creation through the witness of his church. Now are you seeing how how disastrous it is to separate kingdom and cross? Do you see that? To take those two apart. To major on one is to lose the other. It's not just for you. We have a purpose, a commission to take into this world. It's not just an individualistic thing. We are here to bring a full assault on Seattle in, through loving service and humility that suffers. The cross listen, is not just the mechanism by which we're saved, it's also the template by which we live in this world. Jesus said in Mark 8, if you want to come after me, if you want to go where I'm going, if you want to come after me, you have to, here it is, you've got to deny yourself, take, say no to yourself, take up your cross every day and follow me. You want life in Seattle. You want revival in your own life. You want all of these things. You can't get to the resurrection unless you go through death first. That's what Holy Week is all about. We cannot get to the resurrection and skip over the crucifixion. We can't get to Sunday without going through the grief of Good Friday. And that is how the power of God is released in our own lives, but into society, through Christians willing to embody it and live it and suffer and serve, serve a city that will not love you back. That is our mission. We are here to serve and love a city who will not love us back. That's what the diaconate's all about. It's to have an arm of our church that can love be representations of Jesus and his kingdom that can love and take care of our body, but also love the neighborhood and pour out resources and love and grace and help and challenge. Why? Why are we? What's the diaconate about? It's us taking the throttle as a church and pushing it forward. That's what it's about. Into this community, into our lives, into our world to see the kingdom of God come through us. It's the template. Oh, I ran out of notes. That's when I ended last night at one in the morning. Salvation to the world, period, bed. So my conclusion sucks. I don't have a nice landing. It's like, we're done. Uh, you know, Sorry, I, I'm sure you didn't want to come and be super convicted, but I'm not sorry at the same time because that, this, is what it's, this is what it's saying. And I think, you know, I think this is how God told us to bring power into our own lives and into our community. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you led this yourself, that you did this. And because, because you did this, we can do this. If it was all kingdom and I just stood up here and said, we need to love people and serve people that won't love us, and I didn't, and you didn't lead the way by doing it, it wouldn't work. But because you've done it for us and changed our hearts and touched and gripped our hearts and we've been born again, that same energy and sacrificial love can then, from an authentic place, go into our neighborhoods and into our families. So Lord, touch our hearts with your cross again as we partake of communion. I pray that we would see it as personal because it is. It's particular. It is individual so that it can go out and be universal. Lord, do that work in our hearts. Please, Holy Spirit, touch us with your grace again. I think of Isaiah, that after he was cleansed with, in Isaiah chapter 6, after he was cleansed, you said, who should go for me? And he said, send me, I'll go. Uh, May that be us. May that be our church. In Jesus' name, amen.